From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Delta variant, sort of like rain on a post-pandemic parade. And because of it, the WHO says people who are vaccinated should continue to mask. That's not the local guidance, so we'll unpack all this with a leading Colorado pulmonologist. Later, maps with a lot riding on them. We'll talk redistricting with Andy Kenny and Caitlin Kim from our public affairs team. That's as Colorado prepares to grow an 8th congressional district. Then he came out at the age of 90. I got messages almost immediately from strangers, and many of them mentioned the fact that they were hoping that they could come out someday and that my coming out has given them courage. On the last day of Pride Month, we revisit my conversation with Ken Feltz and his journey of love, heartbreak, and hope. Colorado Public Radio's fiscal year ends today. Your contribution right now will shape the news and music you rely on during the next 12 months. CPR connects you to the newsmakers and the musicians that matter to you. Your financial support during this fiscal year-end countdown matters, too. You still have time to make a difference, so please join us in this effort. It takes just a moment to give at CPR.org. And thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We're going to work through a fairly depressing headline you might have seen. World Health Organization urges fully vaccinated people to continue to wear masks. Their reasoning? That that COVID-19 Delta variant that's circulating. The news comes just as Coloradans have been returning to some semblance of normal life. The WHO's mask guidance reminded us a bit of that stormy scene in The Godfather. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. All right, here to put this news into some local context is critical care and ICU physician Dr. Anuj Mehta of Denver Health. He has helped advise the state on vaccine allocation. And doctor, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Ryan. Let's lay a little groundwork. Why is this Delta variant raising red flags? So the Delta variant, which was first detected during the recent surge in India, um, has been shown to be the most transmissible form of COVID and has been linked to worse outcomes. So people get sicker. It's more contagious and people are getting sicker, which is very concerning. Very concerning to have both of those going on at the same time. What can we say about how effective the vaccines are against the Delta variant? So we have preliminary data about the Pfizer vaccine suggesting that it is very effective at preventing severe disease and death from uh, the Delta variant and uh, preventing any disease, maybe a little bit less compared to the other variants that we've seen, but still really good. And just a couple of days ago, we got some data about Moderna that it is able to generate antibodies against um, the Delta, Delta variant. We don't have efficacy data yet, but um, that's it, very reassuring. And they both work very similarly. So if you've had an mRNA vaccine, I think that there's a good chance that you're going to have good protection against the Delta variant. Which naturally leads to the question of the J&J, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Yeah, we just don't have the information. Um, it's been around less. It's not in as many countries. Uh, so um, it's, it's harder to know. Um, I think, I suspect that there's probably going to be some efficacy, but I just don't know where that's going to be. Mm-hmm. 
unsettling, I suppose, at this moment if you got that one-and-done shot. How common is the Delta variant in Colorado? It's very common. Um, there are pockets where it's far more common. So Mesa County, um, where we have relatively low vaccination rates, it's um, easily become the most dominant strain there. And we're seeing it throughout the rest of the uh, um, rest of the state. Um, it is spreading in unvaccinated populations almost exclusively. Um, and there's very little doubt that it will soon be the dominant strain across the United States in a matter of weeks. Um, we saw it go from 10% of cases at the beginning of June to even last week was now 20% of cases. It's close to 30% of cases in across the United States. So it's very concerning and spreading rapidly. Indeed, it was first discovered in Colorado in Mesa County, where it's about half of cases of COVID right now, this Delta variant. And mm-hmm. I just want to underscore something you said there. The Delta variant is spreading in unvaccinated populations. Are unvaccinated folks prolonging the pandemic? Um, I think so. And I fully recognize that everybody has to make their own individual decision about whether they get a vaccine and whether it's the right thing for their children. Um, But I think that um, there is overwhelming data that these vaccines are safe and they're highly effective. Um, And I think a lot of the reasons for people to be that they had concern about it, I think it was just spelled as we've generated more data. And I think the Delta variant really puts all of our efforts to reopen, keep schools open, keep businesses, keep bars and restaurants open. It puts it at risk. Um, And I'm very concerned that we're entering a two track for this pandemic, meaning in populations that have higher vaccination rates, like say parts of Denver, um, things are gonna go relatively back to normal. And we know that the people that are vaccinated have some degree of protection. But in places like Mesa County and other regions within the um, state and in the country where you have large pockets of unvaccinated uh, individuals, I think we're really going to struggle. I think there are going to be issues with keeping businesses open and really come the fall issues with keeping schools open. I mean, that's really important as well to underscore that the Delta variant, which is both more transmissible, transmissible and apparently more virulent, Uh, could prevent the return to school, which a lot of parents, of course, have been hoping for, and educators as well. What would this mean for hospitals, for ICUs on the Western Slope in Mesa County, for instance? Um, It's interesting the tense you used. You used the future tense, um, and I'm going to use the present tense because um, it's happening now. I uh, am in conversations with doctors that work on the Western Slope and Grand Junction, and the hospitals are filling up rapidly. Um, now, there's high turnover, but um, they're pretty full, and um, the healthcare workers there are burnt out. Um, they've been fighting this battle now for well over a year, um, and especially in places like Mesa County, there's been no lull. Um, so already we're seeing um, uh, the seams being stretched in places where you have large numbers of unvaccinated individuals. If there's someone listening right now who wishes to be vaccinated and isn't currently, would you advise them to seek out the Pfizer vaccine first or take whatever's available? I think I would take whatever's available. I do think that um, because there's a little bit more data about the mRNA vaccines, either Pfizer or Moderna, um, if that's an option, I would maybe pursue that. But I wouldn't delay getting vaccinated um, if those aren't options. But I do think there are options in those places. Well, let's talk about this World Health Organization guidance. Again, the headline that the WHO 
urges fully vaccinated people to continue to wear masks. That is not the local guidance uh, throughout mm-hmm. Colorado. What do you make of uh, the WHO's recommendation here? I think it makes a lot of sense when you take into the context of who they're making the recommendation to. So the vast majority of the world is not yet vaccinated. So India is under 4%. Australia is under 4%. Most countries in Africa are under um, that 5% threshold. So they're making a recommendation for everybody. So there's no interpret, no, no misinterpretation of mm. what that recommendation is. And I think additionally, we have to recognize that the mRNA vaccines are most available in the United States. Um, and, um, and so in other countries, they have other vaccines where we don't know whether Delta is going to be, uh, it's going to be effective against uh, the Delta variant. We don't know as much with data about AstraZeneca, about Sinovax, or about the Russian vaccine. And so I think they're making their recommendations on the fact that the vast majority of the world's population has yet to be vaccinated. And we have different vaccines. And Delta is actively mutating um, throughout, throughout the world as well. We've been hearing about this Delta plus variant. And so really the mass recommendation is to try and protect as many people as possible there. In the United States, you have large pockets of vaccinated individuals and they, you know, I think the recommendations make sense for them. Um, the recommendations are still from the CDC and from the state recommendations, not mandates, but recommendations that if you're not vaccinated, you should be wearing the mask in most situations, especially when indoors. And I think that's where we've seen a big break. The lifting of the mandate resulted in people who are not yet vaccinated, not wearing masks. And I think that's dangerous. Hmm. Delta plus. My goodness. Okay, I long for the days when that was an upgrade on an airline. Now, (laughs) uh, you you talked about unvaccinated people uh, potentially not masking. You think the easing of restrictions, in other words, uh, I mean, I, I walk into businesses all the time that say, if you're unvaccinated, we still recommend you mask. Uh, you, you look at the numbers and you're just saying, listen, it's it's clear that unvaccinated people aren't masking. Yeah. Um, again, I talk to a lot of people that um, live and work in Mesa County and other areas. Um, we know that in Denver, for instance, we're, we're you know, not yet 100 percent vaccinated. And I'll say most grocery stores I go into, nobody's wearing a mask. It's pretty rare. I wear a mask when, even though I'm fully vaccinated, just because I think that that's the right thing to do. And it encourages my kids who are not yet eligible to be vaccinated to keep their mask on. But when you go to other pockets that have had longstanding mask and vaccine resistance, you know, nobody's wearing a mask and yet they're still only around 30 to 40 percent vaccinated. And so that's really we've seen that lifting the lifting of the mandate has resulted in just everybody not masking in certain areas, regardless of their vaccine status, which is not the recommendations from the CDC or CDPHE. If you're unvaccinated, the safest thing you can do is get vaccinated, but also to wear a mask in, in most situations indoors. Is that mask protecting you in that case? It's protecting you and it's protecting everyone else. Everyone else. Um, we, yeah, we know that you know a lot of COVID cases are relatively mild, if not asymptomatic. That doesn't mean you're not going to have long haul symptoms, but um, so you can still transmit it to other people. And that's why it's important to wear a mask to protect you to protect the people around you, and to protect your community. Very briefly before we go, a co-worker of mine was at a dinner party with about 17 people, everyone vaccinated, except an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old. Uh, 12 is the cutoff right now. Um, it made us wonder whether adults should mask to protect kiddos in just a few moments, Doctor. 
Yeah, I think in general, if you know for a fact that all the adults are vaccinated, you know, the kids are pretty protected. I think the problem is in grocery stores and other places where you don't know if everyone's vaccinated, um, that's the bigger issue. And so my kids, I, I make them wear a mask almost anywhere we go because I don't know the vaccinated status of the people that are around me, mm. or especially if they're playing with other kids um, who I know are not yet eligible. Um, and so that, that's how I, um, how, how we work in our family. And, um, um, you know, I look forward to the day that we have a safe and effective vaccine for five-year-olds, which is how my, how old my kids are. A different friend of mine, a very thoughtful friend, uh, goes by this guidance. Uh, if he is in a place where people don't have the choice to be, he masks. In other words, if it's a life and death place, if it's the grocery store because you need food, if it's a medical office, it's, if it's a place people have to be, he masks up. Uh, because he realizes that people may not have the choice. What do you think of that? I, I think it's a good, uh, you know, if you don't know if people are vaccinated, I think it makes sense to make sure if you're not vaccinated, definitely wear a mask. Yeah. And if you are vaccinated, you know, that, that's where I think people can make that individual decision. We know that if you're vaccinated, the vaccines that we have in the United States are highly effective and highly safe. Um, I do it because that's how I encourage my kids to keep wearing a mask. But that's an individual decision. And I think for vaccinated folks in the United States, that's the type of decision they're making. But for unvaccinated folks, one, get vaccinated as soon as possible. It's the only way we're going to make it through this. And two, the recommendations to keep you, your community, your family safe is that you should be masking indoors um, until you get fully vaccinated. All right. Pulmonologist Dr. Anuj Mehta of Denver Health on the Delta variants and that warning from the World Health Organization, putting that into some local context. This state's political landscape is about to be redrawn. We mean that literally. Colorado's going through the decennial process of resetting congressional and state house boundaries. Draft maps are out now, and there's a lot to talk about. So from our public affairs team, Caitlin Kim and Andrew Kenny are here. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Hello. Hi. Let's start with probably the biggest change that'll come from these maps Congressional District 8. Population growth means that Colorado gets a new seat. Where might it go, Caitlin? Well, right now it's in the northern uh, Metro Denver area. It has a big part of Arvada, Westminster, Broomfield, stretching a little bit into Weld County. You know, it's part of the fastest growing area of the state. And the staffer who explained the map said about 30 percent of the population of Colorado is, is Hispanic, but none of the current Congress members are Hispanic. This district will have a Hispanic population equivalent to the state level. Okay, so the 8th Congressional District, as currently drafted, let's be very clear, uh, would be those northern suburbs of Metro Denver. How these lines get set could affect which party controls Congress after 2022, given how closely Mm -hmm. divided the U.S. House is. Uh, Based on this draft, what's the partisan picture, Caitlin? Well, right now we're looking at a possible 4-4 split in Colorado's delegation. Four Democrats, four Republicans. At least that's how it's playing out on paper. Now, if Colorado were still a purple state, I think this would be pretty good. But a lot of Democrats point out that this map is not reflective of where Colorado has moved in the last few years. And I would, I would probably say the last decade, which is you know solidly Democratic, mm. at least on the federal and state level. The model the nonpartisan staff used to come up with how a district might lean was the 2018 attorney general's race. Some people think that's not the best measure to get a good understanding of how these districts will go. Um, The staff said this draft map creates two competitive seats. I don't think that's the case. I think there's one. Expound on that. 
Well, Democratic Representative Ed Perlmutter, um, uh, Congressional District 7, he won by double digits last November, has been drawn into a new district that would, again, on paper, lean Republican. I believe it's a plus three district. So this is going to be uh, one area of discussion as as the maps move forward. Discussion, probably debate. Um, the redrawing of maps is in the hands of politically balanced commissions, which voters actually created. Uh, there's one for congressional maps, one for statehouse maps, which we'll get to, by the way. Andy, briefly walk us through the process. How does it work? Well, one of the most important things about this new process is that these commissions are supposed to remove the influence of politicians. And so to start with, you've got to look at the commissioners themselves, 12 on each board, 12 for the legislature, 12 for Congress. Yeah. And each one is split between Republicans, Democrats, and unaffiliated. And they were selected through this kind of complicated process that relied heavily on randomization. And the whole idea was to make it so politicians don't get to handpick who's on this board. Yeah. And then there's the actual process itself. The amendment set out some fairly specific criteria for how these maps should be drawn. Mm -hmm. You know, compact, contiguous, comply with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, preserve communities of interest, which is a somewhat ambiguous phrase, and encourage competitive races where they can. Communities of interest. Yeah. Whose interests? Right? Oh, man, that's a whole topic of debate. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, I do want to reiterate these are draft maps, but where does the process go from here, Andy? The commissioners are basically working to take it all in right now. It's a lot of information. You know, on the state legislature side, 100 districts that were redrawn. Yeah. Then they go on tour around the state and they take in public comment and eventually draw up a final version of these maps. And then it goes to the state Supreme Court, who has to basically approve a map by the end of this year so that they can use it in the 22 elections. What are some of the things they'll wrestle with from uh, here? It's interesting. The commission has so many different priorities, and some of them are kind of contradictory. So it's kind of like, for example, do you want to keep a whole city in one specific Senate district, or do you want you know to preserve that community of interest? Yeah. Or do you want to mix in some of those liberal voters with conservative voters in the suburb and create a more competitive district? Those are both priorities for the commission. Um, you know, again and again, they decide, do you split up a school district or a neighborhood or how do you define who should be together and voting together? Yeah. The preliminary maps for the state legislature came out Monday. You said it's 100 districts, Andy. That's 65 House districts, 35 state Senate districts. How are those lines changing? Well, every time this happens, the thing is that the rural districts tend to get enormous geographic changes. You might add or lose whole counties to your uh, rural Senate or House district. In the city, because the population is way more dense and changes a lot faster, those districts are a lot smaller. And that means that they can get totally new shapes, like, and you can rapidly find yourself in a whole new district. Um, just by the way it's changed. Here's uh, Ryan w Ryan Winger. He's with the Pollster Magellan Strategies. In a bigger city, you, you literally have to split part of the city. And so you're just trying to figure out, okay, in Denver, it makes more sense to group these neighborhoods or communities together. Now that these draft maps are out, what's been the response? Uh, Caitlin, let's start with Congress. You know, as everyone has said, including you, you know, everyone is stressing that these are preliminary maps. That's one thing you hear across the board, a starting, port, uh, starting point for discussion. They can and will change. 
Um, the question is how much. Uh, the state Democratic Party said, it is, said in a statement when the congressional map came out, the draft map came out, that it seems to put a thumb on the scale for Republicans. This goes back to that 4-4 split. I think for me what's interesting is the third congressional district where you saw two potential Democratic candidates, Sol Sandoval of Pueblo and Don Valdez from the San Luis Valley, get drawn out of CD3. Huh. Now, yeah, Sandoval issued a pretty scathing statement basically calling this draft map racist, but she expects it to change. Um, both she and Valdez are still talking, at least on social media, like they're running against incumbent Lauren Boebert, whereas whereas um, State Senator Kerry Donovan, who is in the Vale area, um, and people, there were questions about whether or not she would actually be in CD3, um, has actually now is her district is now actually fully in it. So this will all be interesting to see how that all plays out. Andy, have the state legislative maps gotten, I don't know, it's like a similar reception? Um, yes and no. They're, I think they've been a little less controversial because there's less power involved. It's not Congress. Um, and also these state maps probably won't really affect the balance of power. Republicans are in a deep minority in the state, the, in the state house, and mm-hmm. this won't really necessarily change that. But one thing that's important is it could weaken the Latino vote in some places. Um, you know, when we redrew the maps in 2011, when the state did, we came out with seven state house districts that had a majority of Hispanic voters. This new draft only has three. Staffers said that they didn't intentionally dilute that vote or anything. And they they said they could address it by hopefully redrawing some lines and kind of shifting things around. They said it was an accident, basically. Some Latino politicians say they really need to fix that. Here's former Representative Joe Salazar. That is extremely disconcerting to me. And I hope that as we move through this process, uh, I hope that weighs heavily on these commissioners. Andy, Caitlin kind of uh, hinted at this, but what happens to current lawmakers with these state maps? Like those districts are small enough that I imagine some of them could find themselves in a different district when it's over. Yeah, it can be uh, pretty disconcerting for your your friendly local politician. Essentially, they could end up needing to run in a new district against potentially less friendly voters if the makeup of the district changes. And if multiple incumbents end up in the same district, they have to have basically a royal rumble sometime (laughs) between members of the same party to decide who gets the representative represent it. I talked to Republican strategist Josh Penry, and he said it's actually an unusual number of these fights being set up, especially for the ruling party, the Democrats. You know, historically, the hallmark of redistricting processes is having incumbents win and people on the outside kind of looking in lose. And so I think that you definitely see with this initial map that the deck is shuffled. And you can't take that incumbency into account when you're redrawing these lines. That's right. Uh, Caitlin, what about our current members of Congress? How would the draft maps change things for them? Well, right now it doesn't, except for, again, Ed Perlmutter. Um, Excuse me. Everyone else would still be in a safe seat. That said, I always think it's also about who else runs because, you know, you never know. You never know who pops up in these newly drawn districts. Let's wrap up by talking a bit about the public's role here. It feels really important. How mm-hmm. can people get involved, Andy? The state has a super informative website where you can check out the maps and submit comments, stuff like that. It's redistricting.colorado.gov, redistricting.colorado.gov. I love that URL, very straightforward. And they'll be announcing more than 20 public hearings all around the state over the next few months. Thanks to both of you. I appreciate your time and the explanations. Thank you. Thank you. So you heard from Andrew Kenny and Caitlin Kim, our D.C. reporter. They're both on our public affairs team talking about the draft redistricting maps and where the process goes from here. 
And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a coming out story 90 years in the making. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Paula Williams is transgender and author of As a Woman, our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's a fresh look at the gender gap. She has no idea how much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy. Tickets for tonight's event at cpr.org slash turn the page. Supported by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. In the isolation of the pandemic, Ken Feltz of Arvada began writing his memoirs, starting from his birth 90 years ago in Dodge City, Kansas, through to his time in the Navy. Fifty pages in, painful yet beautiful memories stopped him in his tracks, scenes he had buried. Felt's daughter, Rebecca Mays, noticed a change in her father, so she asked him what he was missing most. He said he was missing the one true love of his life. And did he say who that person's name was? Not until an email later that night, and he told me it was Philip. Philip? Had you ever heard of Philip before? I had never heard Philip mentioned at all. Had you ever talked about Philip before this moment, Ken? No. Philip was buried very deep. I was really a closet gay for sure. This, Rebecca, for you must have been quite the revelation. What was your reaction when your dad revealed this to you? He was so sad, and my reaction was simply to try and comfort him like I would, whether it was a male or a female. He was so filled with regret, and I remember telling him that he made the best decision he could with the information that he had at the time, and that I hoped that he could focus on that and not beat himself up so much. You saw him beating himself up. Yeah, he was really upset with himself and felt like he had missed a huge opportunity, the biggest opportunity of his life. My background in starting in Dodge City, Kansas in 1930 was a rather fundamental Christian background. We all learned right and wrong, do and don't. And I, uh, among all the kids, learned very well that homosexuality was a sin and there was consequences for a person who engaged in sin, which I hung on to very tightly a lot of a good part of my life. After your conversation with your daughter, you ultimately decided to come out on Facebook, again at age 90. Uh, what went into that decision, Ken? It was a little bit of uh, saying to myself, well, she took that well. I wonder how other people would take it. Huh. I talked to some of my best friends, particularly a, a, a female friend that I was in water aerobics with that was close to me, and she uh, read my statement I was going to put on Facebook the next day, and she was highly approving of it, as were others. So I then decided, okay, I'll put it on my Facebook. Well, I put it on my Facebook, but I put it on public also, which actually I wasn't really aware of what I was doing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it got out a little further than I had planned on it originally. And then I sent it to all my email friends. Well, and I'll say that this has now made its way around the globe 
Uh, okay, so you ran this post that you were going to put on Facebook. You ran that by someone who you met in the swimming pool. Yes. And she reacted well to it. She um, did. She really did. As I say, she was the closest friend I had over there, and I was concerned about her uh, because I thought she might have romantic feelings towards me. Oh. And I really felt bad if that was true, and I wanted her to hear this from me and not hear it from the radio or something else. So I did. I went over and spent an evening with her. He also read it to me the night before, and I thought it was absolutely beautiful and perfect. Will you read a portion, Ken? There comes a time when you grow old that you have to face up to how you have lived your life, to face up to your inner self. I have always had two personas, the one out in public that I call Ken. The other one is my alter ego I know as Larry. Both of us have fought for control and each dominated for a period of time. Ken, however, for a long time has done a pretty good job of keeping Larry at bay. Ken had planned to take Larry to the grave with him, but now Larry is on his own and may have replaced Ken as the dominant persona in his body. This message here is that I am free, I am gay, and I am out. Tell me about this Larry fellow. First of all, where did that name come from? I don't know where it came from. It just popped up. But uh, Larry's my alter ego. Larry's the censor of my life as long as I was straight. He would be the one that I would talk to about what I'm going to wear today, where I'm going today, what should I do if I read a book Will other people think I'm gay? Larry was kind of the, the, the gay part who wanted to be gay and be out. And Ken was the conservative part that kept overriding Larry's decision. So Ken had to be the one that ran everything as a conservative individual. And that was down to what you would read? Oh, yes. I, I would not go to the library and check out a book uh, on gay people, or I wouldn't even buy it at a book stand for fear other people would think, oh, he must be gay. So everything I did was censored underneath. Tell me more about the reactions that started to come in. And again, th this was not a private post. Uh, so that means that I, I gather some strangers started to reply. Yes, I, I got messages almost immediately from strangers. Almost everyone was supporting and congratulating me on doing this. And many of them mentioned the fact that they were hoping that they could come out someday and that my coming out has given them courage. Are there other older individuals that have reached out to you? A number of them. They talk about having been married for 20 years and finally come out and at age 50 or something. Uh, I've had older people particularly seem to regret not having come out. Here's what fascinates me. You had a coming out Rebecca. Yes. To your father many years ago. Yes, 25 years ago. You came out as lesbian. Right. Did you ever suspect that your father was gay? I wasn't completely surprised when he came out, but I was mostly surprised, and I certainly had never heard of this Philip fellow. I thought even if my dad was gay, he had probably never acted on it. How was your coming out to him those decades ago? It was a little rough. Um, he was telling me the things that he'd been telling himself all these years, that this would make my life harder, and it was not the right thing to do, and my relationship would not last. But I proved him wrong. You've been in a long-term relationship, a marriage. For 25 years, yes. 25 years. 
When your daughter came out to you, do you remember thinking thoughts about your own homosexuality, Ken? Oh, yes. It was an uncomfortable position to be a gay person in the closet telling another gay person who is coming out of the closet that it's wrong to do that. You should stay in the closet if that's where you are. And I really had mixed emotions, but I just did not feel I could come out. Hmm. In other words, there was a part of you that wanted to tell your daughter that you were gay? Oh, yeah. At that moment? All my life, yes. And yet you kept that a secret for many more years after that? That's correct. Is there a part of you that is mad at your father for his initial response to your coming out? I did go through that a little bit, but I quickly forgave him. He also came around very quickly and is the biggest supporter of our marriage and our children, so I don't think of it as a bad thing anymore at all. You talked a bit, Ken, about your upbringing in Kansas. What do you remember it feeling like as a kid when you first started to realize that you were different? When I was born, of course, in Dodge City, we were regular church members and attendees. We moved because of my father's job several times and ended up in 19... 42 in Belen, New Mexico, a small town. And in that town and in that school, I met a young man that, well, he was a boy, and he invited me over to his home for a sleepover. Came bedtime, we uh, undressed to our underwear and went to bed. As the night wore on, the room got cold, and we were snuggling, and we finally just kind of figured out what life was all about. And that was when I decided, man, this is what I'm going to stick with the rest of my life. So, yes, that was that was it. I decided then that I was homosexual. I was gay. And remind me how old you were. Twelve years old. Twelve years old. But that also meant that you were going to keep a secret, I guess. I immediately knew I had to keep a secret because I could not tell anybody because I knew from my training that it was a sin, it was wrong, and I'd probably go to hell if I continued. Do you think that your parents ever suspected? I don't think so, although I wondered why they never questioned the fact that I never went to school dances, never brought a girl home, never dated, never went out. The only other time I thought my mother suspected was after Rebecca was born, and they came to see their new grandchild, and my mother held her in her arms, and she said to me, I didn't think we'd ever see this baby. And I thought she meant that I was never going to have a baby, and uh that I was gay. But what she really meant was she thought I was never going to get married and therefore never have a child. Hmm. So that's the closest I got to thinking that she knew something. After you completed your four-year enlistment in the Navy, you finished college at the University of Kansas, and you liked California. So you decided to move there and find a job, and that's how you met Philip. That's correct. Tell me about the first time you met Philip? I met Philip for the first time while working for a new company in California as an insurance investigator. I had a little problem with writing out this new form that I had not familiar with. And Philip came over to me and wanted to help me. And we got on real well just almost immediately. We started coffee and then we started dating. And from then on, uh, it was Philip and I together all the time. And what did you like about spending time with him? Just the company. I mean, the 
fellowship, the holding hands, uh, the closeness, things like that. That they were just, it just felt so good for a person who had been alone for so long. Were these the sense memories that were coming up during the pandemic as you started to write your memoirs? Yes, uh, very definitely. Uh, see, <sighs> sorry. Even now, <clears throat> it's still okay. really visceral, huh? Very much so. Yes. Uh, Do you think that that's proof it's true love? It must be because it's hung on for sixty years now, buried and then dug up. And it's kind of hard to get around it right now, but it's getting better. It's getting better. Okay. When you say it's hard to get around it, what do you mean? Except the fact that it once was and will never be again. Uh, that it's a memory and it needs to be reburied, I guess. So what led to you and Philip separating? One Saturday night which I remember very clearly. We had worked in the yard all day, and we had dined with his sister and her daughter. We had showered together. We had gone to bed as usual. We had a a candle, which we kept on the nightstand at night. It, it sounds like at that point you were living as a gay man. Yes, I was. Okay. So we went to bed, and we were as intimate as we had been, and Philip suggested we might take our relationship to a step higher, which then we did, and it was a very intimate night. When you say to the next level, you mean physically? Yes. Uh-huh. And the next morning was Sunday, and we went to church. He was in the loft singing in the choir. I was in the pews watching what was going on, and it just hit me that no matter how beautiful our night had been, how wonderful it was, how much I loved it, according to my training, my upbringing, my religion, it was a sin. I was wrong. What I had done was not right. Uh, and I couldn't shake that. So I don't know if I ever told Philip uh, what, what happened, but we stayed together about another month, and then I couldn't take it any longer, so I left. You couldn't take the shame that you felt. That's correct. You left, like, with no trace? Oh, no, no, no. I made the proper arrangements. I resigned my job at the retail credit company, and and he corresponded with me after I got home. Unfortunately, I was so determined to be straight that I did not respond to his letters, and eventually uh, he stopped writing. And you eventually got married to a woman. Again, uh, while I was being nice and straight, yes, uh, I moved to Colorado Springs, got a job as a office manager, joined the, a, church, a major church and became almost part of its staff, met a young lady in the youth group, and we did share some similar th thoughts and interests. And uh, in about six months then, we married. I was just caught up in the moment here that I was just this straight person. How many years were you married? 
about 15 or 16. And this is when you have Rebecca? Married in 61. She came in 72. We got divorced in 80. And how often during that marriage did you struggle between Ken and Larry? Very little. Because honestly, I did everything I could to be straight. I never strayed from being straight during the marriage. Did you love her? I did. I did. It's a different kind of love than what I had with Philip. Just standing next to you, you could feel the love flowing. Uh, it was totally different, not negatively so, but it was a different kind of love. And I thought, okay, this is what heterosexual love is all about. How is it to hear that, Rebecca, about the contrast between the relationship between your parents and the relationship between your father and Philip? Well, I know exactly what he's talking about with Philip, since I feel that with my wife. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I'm sad that he didn't get to enjoy that for longer like I have. And does it change your perception of your parents, of their relationship, of what it meant to be their kid? You know, not not really. They argued quite a bit when I was younger, so I'm kind of surprised they ever loved each other. (laughs) Oh, really? Well, I knew they loved each other, but they, they certainly had... A lot of disagreements. How long did Philip keep writing you? Only a few months, very few months. And did you try to keep tabs on him? This is pre-Facebook. That's correct. And so I go to the public library and find the Long Beach phone books and call all the Philip J's in the phone book, see if I could locate him. But nobody said they ever knew me before. Uh, so you did try that? Oh, yes. I tried that after the divorce. After the divorce. That was probably one of the first things I did after the divorce was suddenly I'm free and maybe it's time to look at my other side. And so I, I started looking up. And right, you're right. There's no computer in those days. There's no way of looking up the person. During the time between leaving him and getting the divorce, I had lost or destroyed all of my records and pictures and things like that, because I was moving around a lot, so something had to go. So I didn't have hardly anything left to find him with. No letters that he had had, no addresses. I had even forgotten his sister's name where she lived, and I gave up because I just couldn't see finding him with what limited resources I had. Do you know what happened to Philip? Oh, yes. One of the people who wrote to me on Messenger, having seen this story, wrote and said that her job was to find parents for adopted children when adopted children were looking for their parents. And she volunteered to find Philip for me. And I told her, yes, I'd I'd really love for you to do that. So within a week or 10 days, I got the first message from her. First, it was, I found Philip and I think he's still alive. And certainly, I was elated. And then a couple of days later, she told me that she had definitely found Philip, that he had passed a couple of years ago. Uh, but she did connect me up with one of his uh, nieces in California. So I did have some contact. And how did that go? I'm so sorry you lost him. Did you have fantasies of, of maybe him being alive still and reconnecting? That's correct. That was what I really hoped for. And uh, he had had a partner for... Many years, but the partner had died, oh, 10 or 12 years ago. And then Philip lived alone the rest of his life until he died in 2013. 
and I was always hoping that he would be alone when I found him and we could get back together. Hmm. How is the conversation with his niece? We've got along real well. We still correspond. I uh, sent her links to the interviews that have been out, and she had part of his belongings after he passed away, and she went through them and sent me some pictures of him. So I've been very appreciative of that, and she's understanding very much of Philip and my relationship. Did Philip talk about you to her? Oh, no. According to her, they hardly knew him, that he was a very private person, that's the way she put it, Hmm. and did not really connect with the rest of the family. Rebecca, what do you hope for your father? Uh, Mostly I hope he can forgive himself. Uh, I hope he can be happy. I'm so glad he's working through all this. And I just hope he enjoys however much time he has left. Have you forgiven yourself? No. No. Do you want to find love? I'd love to, yes. This lockdown has really been tough living at home. I live alone, and uh, the days do get long. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to just be companionship, yeah. And in what other ways have you embraced the true Ken? How else does it manifest? Uh, Because of the the virus, uh, oddly enough, I've not had a toe trim in months, and they were getting pretty bad. So my daughter made an appointment for us to get pedicures. We got pedicures, and she got blue toes, and I got purple toes. So my my toenails are now just a bright purplish turquoise. Uh, I wear a wristband. I think it's a rainbow wristband. It's a rainbow. I have a, a rainbow hoodie which is very attractive and really gets comments. I attend the um, virtual meetings at the LBG Center, doing whatever I can to further the gay cause. And what does that cause look like to you? It's so much different than it was when I was with Philip. I, we were actually in a felonious relationship because it was very illegal in California at that time not just what we were doing, but uh, uh, you couldn't even uh, hold hands in public. It was a, a terrible time then, and right now it would be so much easier for young people to come out now, even though I know it is still very frightening and there's always the parental concern as much as anything. Mm. But um, it, it's different, and I could not have come out then. It was no problem coming out now. Rebecca, do you remember that appointment to get your toes Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, We just went in for pedicures and I went to pick my color and he said, well, pick a color for me. Get me a nice teal or turquoise. (laughs) And it's just amazing after all his life, you know, I'm used to him in uh, conservative colors, browns, blacks, uh, maybe navy blue on a a crazy day. On a crazy day. (laughs) Yeah. And now uh, he wears these bright clothes. He's got this tank top. Uh, He's never let his hair go get so long as it is now. He always kept it very short, and uh, it's just amazing to see the transformation. Do you want to be married again? No. 
<laughs> you've done. You've been there, done that. That's correct. That's correct. Now, of course, if it was uh, Philip, I'd marry Philip again. Hmm. <laughs> what do you think you still have to? process with Philip? I have to really believe that he forgave me. I think that would be the starting I think that would be the starting point of telling myself that what I did was necessary at that time. And I'm very thankful for having at least found out that he did live his full life, hmm. had a partner. So I don't feel so bad about that. I'm so grateful to both of you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you so much, Ryan. You're welcome. Thank you. Ken Feltz of Arvada and his daughter, Rebecca Mays, a picture of what has come to the surface for one family during the pandemic. You can see a photo of Ken in his bright rainbow sweatshirt at CPR.org. And since we spoke in August, Ken turned 91, and he has a boyfriend. They met online in October. It apparently inspired him to get in shape by walking and riding his exercise bike every day. It means he no longer needs his walker at home. For pride, Ken took part in a 5K fundraiser for the LGBTQ Center in Denver. Last but not least, he's been doing a lot of work on forgiving himself. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Sonia Doctorian. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.